All right, we're back here, Plenary Session European Edition. I'm joined by Dr. Timothy Olivier. Timothy is, of course, a oncologist based in Geneva, Switzerland. Timothy, it's a pleasure to see you. It's a pleasure for me. It's a pleasure to have you. So it's, um, you, are, you are my guest today. It's a Swiss Alps edition. This is the best type of plenary session. This is the Swiss Alps edition. Absolutely. And I got to say, it's a good edition. It's a good edition. Much better than Zoom edition. Much, <laughs> much better, better than Zoom. Much better. <laughs> much better. And we've been busy. Uh, recently, I came to your hospital, University Hospital Geneva, and gave a lecture to the oncologists. And I thought it was, you know, just a really great discussion. Yeah, it was very uh, engaging. I really like it. The talk was great. Actually, a lot of new stuff you presented there. And the following discussion was very engaging, and uh, I think every the feedback were very positive. That's uh, great to hear. Yes, I made new slides. I make new slides when I'm on an airplane. That's how I. <laughs> that's when I make my new slides. So we have a lot to talk about. We have a number of new papers that Dr. Olivier has published, and we're going to run through those. But I see that uh, you know we're in Europe, and the world of lung cancer is going on right now. World lung cancer in Vienna, Austria. Yeah, not far from here. Not far. Yeah. But they look hot. They don't look like they have the cool European, the Swiss Alps kind Maybe of feel. Maybe the altitude here is cooler. <laughs> yeah, the altitude here is a little bit better. But they have a lot of altitude with the bombastic rhetoric that I hear coming out of the conference. So I saw something very interesting, the Empower 10 study. This is the randomized control trial of atezolizumab in the adjuvant setting. And of course, we had had disease-free survival, but now they have published the overall survival. And they have stratified it based on the PD, uh, based on TC, PDL1 stain. And what they show is that if your PDL1 50% or higher, uh, there is, appears to be a clear overall survival benefit. And if there's above 1%, which includes the 50% and higher, there's a trend to it. <laughs> they call it a trend towards a benefit. There's a trend towards a benefit. But of course, if you just looked at 1 to 49, it looks like there's no benefit at all. So you've been following this. What, uh, what are your thoughts on yeah, this? Yeah, I've been following this. Uh, maybe you follow more closely the very recent presentation uh, in this uh, Lung Cancer Summit. But um, there's a lot of uh, change in the neoadjuvant and adjuvant space in lung cancer. I think this is uh, interesting. And we just published um, a commentary about the Checkmate uh, 816 trial in the mm -hmm. neoadjuvant space. That has several limitations. Um, also, I can uh, imagine that many people are very... Uh, excited by the results, we, we hi highlight major concerns. Maybe we can go through that. Yeah, let's go through um, And this was, uh, I think, Empower 010 led to the FDA approval of ATEZO in 2021. Or, right. um, already, a couple of years no? ago. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I don't know what are your thoughts. I know you published something about the um, nested and adjacent subgroup. <coughs> I think this is one issue maybe you want to talk about. Yeah, I think that that's one of my, my big issues, which is that. Uh, you know, it's not helpful to me to tell me how the outcomes do in above 50% and then above 1% because above 1% includes above 50%. So I want to know 1% to 10%, 11% to 20%, 21% to 30%, etc., etc. In this case, 1% to 49% looks totally null. But it would be nice to see some breakdown even within 1% to 49%. It's a big bucket. And then above 49%, you know, it would be nice to see breakdown from 49 to 59 and 60 to 69, you know, to break this out into more sort of concrete subgroups. And so we call this nested subgroups where one is within the other and adjacent subgroups where they're next to each other. And you will learn a lot more with adjacent subgroups. Now, of course, you know, this PDL1 stain, it's not a perfect stain. And if you stained it and I stained it, you might say 62% and I might say 42%. That's fine. We can have that discussion about the inter-rater reliability. But at a minimum, I think it's important to know 
however you slice it, is somebody who is, you know, 10, 90, 20%, yeah. 90%, yeah, or 90% benefiting. Yeah. Is it 90% benefiting the same way as a 40%? And, you know, sometimes it is kind of obvious. Um, and so that's my concern here. The other concern always with these kinds of studies is something that we've been working on, which is if you are on the control group, some of those people will eventually relapse and they should all get a yeah. checkpoint inhibitor. Uh, they should all get a checkpoint inhibitor, probably in the frontline setting of metastatic disease. How many of them did get a checkpoint inhibitor? And that will have implications for OS. I think, yeah, that's a, a good point. We, we have a work on, on that. I, I hope it will be out soon. In the Checkmate 816 trial, we just exemplified it. Just remember, all patients are eligible for immunotherapy. So there's no reason that these patients in the control arm, they won't get immunotherapy if they relapse. Yeah. And in the Checkmate, so just a, a quick uh, reminder, Checkmate um, 816. 816, it's neoadjuvant um, lung cancer, early lung cancer from stage 1B, I think, to 3A. Mm -hmm. Um, they have to they, be thought a surgical candidate yeah, at the outset. Uh, yeah, and three cycle of either chemo or chemo plus nivo. Then surgery, and then they could have uh, adjuvant chemotherapy and then surveillance. That's it. And for those patients who relapse in the control arm and receive a systemic treatment, 65 of them receive immunotherapy. So mm -hmm. 30, 35 did not receive immunotherapy. I think it should be 100% because they are all eligible for because they are in the trial and they are fit. Yeah. So I think- That's a huge said, limitation. Yeah, huge limitation. I wanna run through your four limitations, but I think that's a huge one. But yeah. the other thing I wanna point out is that before this study existed, I didn't say neoadjuvant often in lung cancer. It wasn't a thing we talked yeah. about. Yeah. And I've asked people, what is the best study that you're gonna hang your hat on to show me that neoadjuvant is as good as adjuvant? And what they say is generally, well, we know that to be true in other situations like breast cancer. I was like, well, you know, it's a different cancer. I don't know, I don't know yeah. what to tell you. It's yeah. a different cancer, so you need to generate data for this particular cancer. But let's let's hit your four concerns. What were the four concerns with Checkmate 816? This is translational oncology. Paper. Yeah, so we can go uh, no matter the order, but um, first maybe this this point, the control arm. So uh, the neoadjuvant um, chemotherapy is not fully inappropriate. I don't, we don't say that, but the mainstay, the, the most common um, treatment is adjuvant chemo in those Particularly patients. like a stage two patient. Yeah, and you have this LACE meta-analysis, more than 4,000 patients, mm -hmm. so it's, it's strong. You have a 5.4% benefit after five years um, of follow-up. And for the neoadjuvant trials, there are fewer trials, fewer patients. Some of them were uh, stopped during accru accrual. So it was not the, the, the standard of the main, the most common standard of care. So there's an issue there, as um, we said in the paper, we have a, an issue that because you have this um, uh, benefit um, of uh, nivolumab, we will implement systematically this neoadjuvant um, strategy, but maybe it's not the most appropriate strategy. I, get, I think the answer is we just don't know. And you know, I, people keep saying that, well, breast. In breast, we have many studies that have suggested that there is no difference between adjuvant and neoadjuvant. And all I have to say is in breast, you also have hormone therapy. We don't have that in lung. It's a different cancer. It's, it's a, a different very, can different cancer. <laughs> it's a very different yeah. cancer. And so you just don't know until you demonstrate to me. And what will that take? You know, I think it would be a large sort of meta-analytic kind of approach. But I just don't think we don't even have the studies to put in the meta-analysis to ask if they're comparable. I think the comparison with breast is a good transition to another point. Okay, point about, two. About um, the primary endpoints of the study. Yes, okay. PCR, pathological complete response, and EFS, event-free survival. 
And again, a lot of people are, are talking about breast cancer, but yeah. PCR under immunotherapy in the neurodegenerative setting is not even an EFS. <laughs> are not validated surrogate. In lung cancer. Uh, in lung cancer, I think it's very important to understand that a surrogate is validated in a very specific condition. It can be validated in breast cancer under chemotherapy and no longer be vali valid in other condition. And I want to add that it is not even validated in breast cancer. What are we talking about? We just lived through the experience. One, we used PATCR for the approval of adjuvant and neoadjuvant uh, uh, pertuzumab. Uh, and that was done based on a meta-analysis by Pat Cortazar and colleagues in The Lancet, which showed that PATCR did not predict even EFS, and EFS doesn't predict OS, and PATCR doesn't predict OS, so these things just don't predict each other. And of course, we have to back up. One, what is the goal of adjuvant therapy? The goal is, you know, you cut out the cancer, you give some drugs, either neoadjuvant or adjuvant, and the goal is that that person is cured of the disease. And the goal of adding more drugs is to increase the cure to fraction. The goal isn't to delay the time until there's a radiographic appearance in the femur. The goal is to increase the fraction of people in whom the cancer never comes back in the femur. You know, that's the goal, is to cure more people. And so the question is PATH-CR. What's PATH-CR? You cut the tumor out, you look under the microscope, you can no longer see disease in the breast or in the, in the nodes. That's scored as a PATH-CR. There's no doubt about it, it's prognostic. It's better to achieve PATH-CR than not achieve PATH-CR. But a prognostic marker is not the question of surrogacy. Surrogacy asks if, in the aggregate, in hundreds and thousands of people, I increase the fraction of people who achieve a higher path CR, do I also increase the fraction of people cured years down the road? And that's a different question than for the individual who achieves path CR, do they do well? And the answer is, yeah, of course they do better than the person who doesn't. That's a separate question. That's a prognostic question. But we're asking the surrogate question, yeah. you know, can we hang our hat on this? And I think the answer in breast is it didn't do that. And we finally had the results of the uh, long-term OS follow-up of, uh, oh, yeah, of yeah. Affinity, yeah, yeah. Um, which showed that pertuzumab isn't improving OS. What yeah. are we talking about? Yeah. So PATCR failed in breast cancer. It was a huge regulatory blunder. I mean, it led to the expensive use of a costly product that has toxicity, didn't increase cure to fraction in breast, and now you're bringing over to lung where you don't even have that, you don't even yeah. have that yeah. data. Yeah. What are we doing? What are we doing? And, um, and uh, yes, and I think the, the, the point we are making is it could have been um, approved on the accelerated pathway, but it was approved on the regular pathway. And this is also a point because normally the accelerated pathway can provide a safeguard until you have the overall survival result. But here nivolumab was approved as a regular approval. Checkmate 816. Yeah, yeah. And one point to say here, I think, is that um, many people will say that DFS in the adjuvant setting has a correlation in lung cancer with OS. And I think that's true in the paper that Allison and I did in the European Journal of Cancer in 2017. Under chemotherapy. Yeah, yeah under, uh, that's under it. Under That's it. Uh, yeah. He knows where I'm going. Under chemotherapy. In other words, that that relationship, that three-year DFS correlates with five-year OS in lung cancer in the adjuvant space. One, it's not the new adjuvant we're talking about here. It's adjuvant. Two, it's for chemotherapy drugs. It's not for checkpoint inhibitors. Now, why might checkpoint inhibitors be different? And, and, and before, before yeah. we go to the other points, my worry is uh, that it's not my worry is not that the overall survival result will be positive. I think maybe they will be positive. I don't know. Sure. But if you don't provide adequate post-progression treatment, yes. if those patients do not receive appropriate immunotherapy when they, when they progress, they could be a, a surrogate validation, but it's not really what you will have in your in your in your practice. Correct. 
So I have a worried here, and I think the main difference is that in the metastatic setting, you can derive long-term benefit with immune checkpoint inhibitor, even when you are in the advanced or metastatic setting, and that was not really the case with chemotherapy. Now, I think that's the key. That's a key point, which is that in order for these surrogate correlations to hold true, there has to be certain principles of the drug, and cytotoxic drugs in the adjuvant setting can increase curative fraction by eradicating microscopic disease. That same drug in the metastatic setting in lung cancer, a cytotoxic drug, can never cure anybody. So it works here, doesn't work here. With immunotherapy, we don't know that the effect in the adjuvant setting is fundamentally different than the effect in the metastatic setting. It might work really good in the metastatic setting, which if anything means that the DFS is less predictive of the OS later. Mm -hmm. And then your point is excellent. One of the four points, I think we've hit two of the points. Yeah. One, we don't know about neoadjuvant. Two, we don't know about PATCR EFS. But the, the, not, the another point is that when you finally come with the positive OS, and I'm sure they will, because 35% of the control arm is yeah. getting delinquent therapy. Yeah. So they will have a positive OS because it's better to get a checkpoint inhibitor now than never. Yeah. But I didn't need this study to know that. I know that to be true from Keynote 189, et cetera. Um, but that doesn't prove or vindicate this strategy. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that doesn't prove. It's, it's more about the external validity. When you will be practicing with optimal control arm and with optimal post-progression treatment, uh, when yeah. you have full access to all these um, drugs, it's not sure you will have the same outcome. And, and, and you know, I think people, we, quip, we call that external validity, but really that's like, you know, does it apply to your practice? Yes, to your practice. To your practice. It's just be simple. Does the trial apply to the practice? And I think uh, it's a basic question in critical appraisal that uh, answer many questions. Yeah. Okay, what's the... I think we made three points because there yeah. were the primary endpoint, there was the post-progression yeah. treatment, yeah. there was the control arm. Yeah. And the last point that was a bit uh, tricky is that um, in this trial, there were, there were eight amendments or versions. Hmm. So they changed the protocol or version or hmm. statistical plan eight times. And it's very dif difficult to appraise um, why they did all that, <coughs> that, that thing because they are redact re redacted. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> it's like the Mueller report. Yeah. 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 And so, mm -hmm. so yeah. yeah, our concern here is that they could have changed the statistical analytical plan um, by knowing some of the results or maybe for uh, strategic um, mm -hmm. purposes. We don't know. We don't know. You know, recently I had, um, it reminds me of something. I was writing I was writing a document, and in the document I talk about a trial, and I'm not going to get into the details because it's a separate issue. But I said that the, the, the company and the FDA allowed them to make a major protocol amendment where they're basically going to do something totally different. They did what they said they would do. They didn't achieve the endpoint they thought they would. Then they were allowed to totally modify the study and try one more time to get the endpoint they wanted. And... I think it was, it's so problematic, but somebody who read my draft, they said, explain, me, explain to me why this is problematic. And I said, well, it's, it's very difficult to explain, but let me do my best. You know, let me try to explain it. And I was thinking about it and I was like, you know, basically you, you did what you said you would do and you would failed. And then you get one more try. But the thing is, now that I've granted you one more try, do I really know that one more try is all you would get? Mm. I don't know that. In fact, if anything, if that try didn't work, you get to try again and again and again and again. How many times will you be allowed to try? 
And then you get into the problem of the more you try, by chance alone, eventually there'll be something that looks kind of close. And this particular trial had a non inferiority design, so they're just trying to you know squeak mm. it, squeak in above the delta or the margin. And so I know that if you get try after try after try after try, and your non inferiority margin is big enough to park a school bus in, you're going to get a victory eventually. Yeah. Yeah. And so it really the per, you know trial modifications can be done right. They can be done in a good way yeah. where people preserve, think about the alpha error and they think about all these things and they do it in an honest and clean way without looking at the data. But trial modifications also can be misused and abused. And the only way to tell those two apart is if you knew why they did what they did when they yeah. did it. Yeah. And you don't because this thing's redacted. Yeah, yeah. For Just to give an example, the yeah. primary endpoints were modified yeah. to become a past the R and EFS. EFS. What was the original uh, OS? I, I, or EFS and OS. Yeah. Honestly, I'm, I'm even not sure. Okay. Where, yeah. um, you have uh, an initial arm of Nivo EP that was closed. Uh, some, yeah, yes, some, I remember that. I mean, that, you yes. have a lot of things, and, and maybe there are some things that are fully justified, but the issue is that we can't really appraise it. You know, the only metaphor I think of is the Texas sharpshooter fallacy, which is that if we go to a barn and I give you a pistol, and I say, shoot at that target that I painted on the wall, mm. I can judge whether or not you're a good shot. But if I let you shoot at the wall and then you get to go paint the bullseye afterwards, you're gonna look pretty good no matter how bad you are. And, and that to some degree is what happens when you allow all these kinds of protocol modifications. You're committing the Texas sharpshooter fallacy. You're letting the person just shoot and then say, you know what, actually, let's just look at the, that past CR. And after all, you know, like they're actually saying, you know, because we use it in breast cancer. But they forget to say that it actually doesn't work in breast cancer. You shouldn't have used it there. So why the hell are you using it here? Okay, that's a great point. Um, so these are the four points. Yeah. The paper is out where? Translational Oncology. Uh, the paper is out in Translational Oncology with a graphical abstract that is uh, just summarizing the points. And again, uh, it's just not, you know, it's just to be, it's not being critic just to be critic. It's, it's, it's that it's not applying to our practice. I think that's the main point. Um, that we, we are making about the control arm, about post-progression. And maybe it's a, it's a really transformative drug in the neoadjuvant space, but I have some doubts. Yeah. We, we remain with doubts. Now, you know, I, I think that's really well put, and um, people should read the paper. I interviewed Jack West on a prior episode of this podcast, yeah. and we talked yeah. about this. And he said, the only thing that I will say is in its favor, which is it was a fixed course of nivolumab. You know, isn't yeah. isn't yeah, it yeah. nice that you're three and you're done? Yeah. You're three and you're done. Rather yeah. than, yeah. And, and, in for instance, one, one year of atezolizumab. Yeah, but yeah, but yeah, but it's um, it's a bit frustrating to have many trials when you see many limitations and you have to compare these <laughs> and make your choice. When you think you could do those trials with proper control arm, proper pro post progression treatment, proper statistical analysis, pre registration, all these kind of thing. Yeah. And you don't have them. Yeah, that's well put. You know, and I just want to put this, the problems in two buckets. You know, uh, the problems we are talking about that you have enumerated as these four problems. These are problems with this study that our current regulatory law allows the FDA to correct. They are totally free if they so chose to ensure one. You know, we're going to be very reluctant to give you a neoadjuvant approval until you have validated the neoadjuvant strategy. They are very free to say, we will make you have OS as the primary endpoint because our goal is curing people, and you got to give checkpoint inhibitor post-protocol. That's within their current legislative authority uh, and their regulatory law. They can do that. The one thing they can't do under current law, which I would have liked, that, which I would like them to someday be able to do, is to say, we know BMS is going to run this Nivolumab checkpoint 816. 
And we know uh, Genentech, Roche, is going to run um, at uh, Empower 10. Mm, mm. Um, and we know that all these companies are running these kind of similar trials. We should harmonize it, create sort of a single yeah. multi-arm recovery platform. That would be great. That would be great. Yeah. And, but that would take a law. Congress maybe, has maybe to change. The, yeah. the, the, the last thing, yeah. for instance, in Empower in uh, uh, 010, I think they excluded EGFR and ALK. And not in Checkmate 816. So you see, there are some discrepancies discrepancy in the in inclusion exclusion criteria. So it's very difficult to just um, interpret interpret those. I those swear, price. I just saw a slide. Maybe where, maybe it's reverse. Maybe you flipped the two. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. we have to double check. Yeah. yeah, because I swear I saw a slide where they showed in part ten with okay, the. Okay, okay, yeah. I flipped the two, but, yeah. but 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 this is also an important point because. Now they're presenting their data. Adora. Yeah. Uh, so uh, what we will do? With, okay. No. Oh no. No. Go yeah. On, that's, that, well, that's a good point. But I was just thinking that um, they have uh, the intention to treat population. They have the over one percent population. They have the over fifty percent population. They have the one to forty nine percent population. They they could present the results with the driver mutations or without the driver mm -hmm. mutation. They have so many degrees of freedom mm -hmm. that of course they're going to get some wins out of this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know. And and the Adora point I think is the same points. I mean, the problem with Adora is. All the DFS-OS correlation does not apply to TKI. The second problem is we don't know post-progression if the control arm is going to get osimertinib per flora or not. They ought to. Um, it's the same sorts of things. I, I don't know how do you weigh these things. I mean, th the differences are this is a lot more people. Mm. So the amount mm. of money per annum mm. is going to be a ton. Yeah. Adora is a lot more years, though, isn't it? Three yeah. years of therapy. Mm. Um, and uh, and it's not a trivial. I think I made the calculations in the yeah, millions of dollars yeah. to even avert an event. Um, you know, I think they could do better studies. As simple as that. Yeah. What's the next paper that you want to go to the next paper? Uh, the next paper, yeah, um, head to head, so drug dosing and GCSF uh, paper. Yeah, let's do European it. European okay. Journal of Cancer. Do you want so, to talk about yeah. that? Yeah, and I guess I would say that it's one of those papers that, you know, um, I don't know how many people are out there reading papers, to be honest. Everyone wants to listen to a podcast. You know, that's all, that's all. Nobody's reading papers, but there are a few people who still read papers. And one of those people is Mani Moyudin, okay. the great myeloma doctor. And, um, you know, he, I, I saw him tweet about that paper and he said something like, uh, Timothy, you know, I don't know if you saw this tweet. Something I'm not like, sure. he said, Timothy, this is like, you know, a super excellent and thought provoking paper. And, okay, yeah. Yeah. For and, money, yeah. That's high praise, yeah, huh? Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. It's high praise from money. And um, I totally think that's true. And it's one of the few papers that you just genuinely get excited about because after a while, you publish a paper, then, you know, lots of people start to say something similar, which is good because that's what it means to change the field, that a lot of people say something similar. But, you know, also it's, it's also like, you know, I don't know, lost the novelty of it. And, mm -hmm. you know, I, I feel like it's been said and done. And so mm -hmm. I want to move to a different idea. Um, and when you publish this paper, it's just something that not a lot of people ever to ever talk about. Yeah. I never heard anybody talking about it. Yeah. So it does tell us about it. So actually you are, you are maybe modest because you published about the, the same yeah. topic in 2014 yeah a little uh, but but not the yeah, same yeah, way yeah, yeah. yeah so but the this issue was raised so uh, maybe some background yeah. so, so what we studied was the rules in the protocol of two things the drug dose modification mm -hmm. so when you have toxicities or when you have some you have some rules and sometimes you can lower the treatment dose sometimes you can higher the treatment dose and we wanted to compare those rules between arms. And the other thing we studied was the GCSF rules. So GCSF are um, colony stimulating factors, and it's mainly for chemotherapy when you have the 
neutropenia that can induce uh, severe infection. And so it's used in uh, patients undergoing chemotherapy, either prophylactically or creative, yeah, yeah, creative yeah. intent, just to higher the, the count of neutrophils and to reduce the, the severity of infection, we can say. That's briefly. perfect, yeah. yeah. And then to be fair, that's something that I've never published on. Yeah, so the GCS, GCSF part is really, um, I think I talked about uh, at the initiation of the project. So the project was your idea. Um, and it came from the work you did with uh, Tito Fojo. So this was described since um, 2014 at least, but in some trials, there were some unfair rules between arms, favoring the experimental arm often, but it was not really uh, counted how many it happened, how often it happened, and uh, when it's an experimental drug, when it's a control arm. And um, so that was the purpose of the paper, just to systematically appraise head-to-head -head trials. So we went from 29 to 2021, FDA registration head-to-head -head trials, where you could compare those rules. Yeah. So we ended in 62 trials. Yeah. Before you get that, let me give one example. Yeah, yeah. yeah give an yeah. example. Yeah. One example, so they can kind of see it. Um, you know, and, and, and I think this was the example that got, that got Tito and I to think about it. And this was when I was at the NCI and Tito, of course, was program director there. And the example was Axis, Exitinib versus Serafinib in second-line kidney cancer. It was a provocative study because I think, to my knowledge, it's the, it was the first trial in second-line kidney cancer that ever took two active anti-cancer drugs, pitted them head-to-head, -head, and found a PFS benefit for one over the other. That was Exitinib. The, is a better, had a better PFS than Serafinib. And for a while, it kind of changed standard of care. Of course, standard of care has been rewritten many times, and yeah. now, of course, you know where we are. We're with checkpoint inhibitor yeah. plus Axipam, Axipam, yeah. and Nevo, yeah. Nevo, Cavo, Cavo, every, and every, every, everything you can think of, right? <laughs> um, but back then, this was exciting stuff. It wasn't even that long ago, you know. This is we published our, our thing about it in 2014, and I think this came out in the year 2009, 2010-ish. Brian Rennie's paper in the Lancet. Exitinib versus serafinib. They're both two dirty TKIs. They're both TKIs that hit a lot of the tyrosine kinome. They're not very specific. They're dirty drugs, but they both sort of slow the growth rate kinetics of kidney cancer. We looked at this study. There's a PFS benefit. And we noticed one thing about the dosing. The dosing of the drugs, of course, serafinib was stuck with that original dosing from HCC, which is 400 BID then 400 daily, then 400 every other day. So in other words, if you took it 400 BID and you had any toxicity, you were told to dose reduce to 400 daily and then 400 every other day, which is a 50% dose reduction. And then you're taking a quarter of your starting dose and two dose reductions. The other thing we knew about this study and serafinib was that the rates of dose reduction, they're not 1%, 2%, 4%, like some of the old studies of cytotoxic drugs. The dose reduction rates are 37%. 47%, 22%, you know, they're in the, there's significant fractions of people getting dose reduced. And so the dose reduction was occurring frequently and the step size was large on serafinib. Then we look at the step size on exitinib and it's not, you know, it's not 50%, 25%. If I recall correctly, it's 66%, 33%. And if you were doing well on exitinib, you could dose escalate yeah, twice, yeah, yeah. twice. You can crank up the yeah, dose. Yeah. And 30 some percent, about a third of them, were actually dose escalated. Yeah. And then there's a third thing, that the rule for hypertension 
if you had yeah. a hype, yeah, you know, the hypertension rule was different. That in other words, if you took Ixitinib, and one of the class effects of these drugs is it causes high blood pressure, you were allowed to give more antihypertensives before you were required to dose down, and you could crank them up with some antihypertensives on board. But serafinib doesn't get that. Hmm. Ultimately, it has this PFS benefit. But the real question I have is, is Ixitinib a better molecule than serafinib as a molecule? Or is it the fact that many people get dose reductions, these dose reductions are shallower, these people get dose escalation. And we do know that drug dosing is sort of this idiosyncratic thing where there's some people who you, that they only benefit from cranking the dose, other people that they're deriving benefit from the minimally effective dose. And having more sort of steps, having smaller steps gives you a little bit more flexibility in yeah. trying to pushing the dose yeah. up. And okay, so we noticed this, we wrote a paper in, I think called Oral Anti-Cancer Drug Dosing in the JCO, a Commons and Controversy, but we had never sort of systematically looked yeah. at all these studies how phenytoin occurs yeah. yeah okay so back to your paper and uh, yeah so it was very interesting because uh, finally at the end of the day it occurs to have unfair rules in 65 percent of trials so 65 so okay now it, it could be fair if it's sometime in the experimental group sometime in the control group mm -hmm. but 65 55 are favoring the experimental arm so 55% of head-to-head -head trials are favoring the experimental arm in rules of drug dosing modification or GCSF rules. And 10% so are favoring the control arm. I see. So I guess, to be fair, one fair point is that many trials for drugs don't even have a control arm. So your yeah, study doesn't, so, yeah, yeah, okay, it doesn't yeah, apply to that. So we, we had to restrict where we could compare. Yes. Yeah. So many the trials that don't have a control arm, they're not in your study. And the trials where I add... Checkmate 816 wouldn't be in your study either because it's the addition uh, yeah, of a... Because we, yes. we excluded, for instance, if you have just a checkpoint inhibitor, you don't yes. have rules of uh, drug uh, dose modification and you don't have GCSF for checkpoint inhibitors. So we, yes. don't, we don't use it. But also you don't include trials where it's an add-on drug. In yeah. one arm, they get an add-on yeah. and the other arm, they don't get an add-on. Yeah. That's not included. Yeah. You're only looking at trials where they're head-to-head -head and they're different drugs being given, you know, where the dose modification makes sense. But for instance, if in one arm, the GCSF um, administration may be important. For instance, in our manuscript, we give the example of Keynote 42. Yes. Pembro versus Chemo. Yes. And in the Chemo arm, you could receive Carbo AUC5 plus Pemetrexide or Paclitaxel 200 milligram per square meter, and GCSF, prophylactic GCSF, GCSF was not allowed. Hmm. So we included that. And yes. We gave the, but, that, but I guess that, I think that, that it makes sense to me yeah. why one would include that. Example. Just because, to give an example. Because it seems like it's punishing the chemotherapy. It's punishing, it's punishing yeah, them. You, yeah. you will maybe close, uh, stop the treatment uh, earlier because you, you are not allowed to give it prophylactic for the next cycle, for instance. Maybe let's separate these two concepts yes. for a moment. The drug dosing concept and the GCSF concept, they have a, there's a similarity. And the similarity is, is that you're not going to read this in the abstract. And, and even in a journal club, no one is going to say this. This is something hidden in the paper. And what's the hidden thing? It's that this is a bias that penalizes the control arm, doesn't penalize the experimental arm as much, or in fact rewards the experimental arm, which means that you're not looking at a clean test of whether or not the new drug is better than the old drug. It's also the new drug plus a slightly different rule or a slightly more favorable rule yeah. versus the old drug. And so does it matter? You know, some of these new drugs, they probably are better than the old drug. Yeah, yeah. We're, but some are probably not. Yeah. It's just the dosing. 
I think a good good example yeah. is uh, lemvatinib versus sorafenib in uh, H yeah. with the, in the non inferiority trial. Yeah. I think you you describe it in the first paper. Yeah, yeah talk about. But it. what yeah. is interesting, so the first and second step of those modification are not the same, and they are favoring the lenvatinib arm, yeah. so the experimental arm. There there is also a third um, third reduction dose allowed it in lenvatinib, but not in sorafenib. So right. it's a second advantage of lenvatinib. And what was interesting, we we have the result of the dose, um, how you said... Um, uh, yes, uh, um, um, dose reduction and, uh, and cumulative dose yeah, given. Cumulative, yeah, cumulative dose, yeah. Uh, so dose reduction was the same, Yeah. but cumulative dose was is higher. 88% yeah. in lemetinib and 83% in sorafenib. So yes. it's a kind of uh, proof uh, or yeah. example where you have the same dose reduction, but not the, the, the same cumulative dose. Yes, it's a great example. So this is lenvantinib versus serafinib, non-inferiority study. Yeah. The upper bound was 1.08 hazard ratio, which corresponds to like a 40% loss of efficacy yeah. of serafinib. By the way, if you're taking serafinib for HCC, I don't want to tolerate any loss of efficacy. It's like, you know, yeah. not that great a drug anyway. Yeah, right. Yeah. So we don't want to tolerate any loss of efficacy yeah. anyway, but this is tolerating loss of efficacy. And Lenva has three dose steps, serafinib just has two. Dose reduction is common. And even though the dose reduction was occurring sort of at the same rate, or if anything, Lenva had more dose reduction. It was comparable. In, in this paper, it was a 37 and 38. Okay, so it's like really, practically really the identical number. So that was interesting because it was the same, Yes. but the cumulative dose not the same. Yes, and then there's a metric called like the percent of the cumulative dose you intended to give that you actually gave. And in Lenva, it was 88% and the other arm was 83%, yeah, yeah. which means they're getting less of the dose than yeah, you intended to yeah. give. So that's a great example of, yeah. um, so, I mean, what does it mean? It just means that, like, do I really know, well, first of all, I, like, is Lenva as good a molecule as serafinib? The answer is, well, it's a non-inferiority study anyway. It wasn't the superiority mm -hmm. study. But if anything, Lenva might be a worse molecule and just better dosing around serafinib. That's possible, yeah. Now, I want to say, I presented this paper at, um, at a UCSF conference, and one of the things people said to me was, and this is a fair point, and I think we say this in the manuscript, yeah. Which is that, you know, when it's not it's not my job to like fix the drug label on serafinib, yeah. you know. That's the way the label is. I just follow the label. And I wanna say that's probably true. It's not you know, it's not your fault. Yeah. But I think companies are smart and the reason you're building in your small steps and you're changing your pill is because you know that that's an way you can exploit it. We we thought that. we talked about that, but uh, at the end of the day, 50, 55% are favoring the experimental arm and ten percent the control arm. So that is telling. That is telling. It shouldn't be like that. Shouldn't, yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's another good point, right? Which is that if this if was just occurring at random, at random, at random yeah, it yeah. would be a split. Yeah. Now, talk about the GCSF for a second. So, yeah. Is it the sacituzumab? So, yeah. yeah. GCSF, we exemplify this uh, with sacituzumab probitacone in the ASCEN trial in triple negative breast cancer. <laughs> and as you said, in, in this example, you have to really to dig in the protocol, even the protocol and the uh, appendix is not the same and it's not the same as the FDA labels. So, you have to, to take time, and as you said, in Journal Club, it's not always like that. Um, so we show in this uh, trial that, for instance, first episode of grade four neutropenia, um, satisimab govitecan, you receive mandatory GCSF. In the control arm, it was at the physician discretion. So you have different rules like that. And um, so we studied that and we found the same kind of uh, finding as dose, uh, dose reduction. So it was favoring uh, the, the experimental arm. Uh, we gave the example of also Keynote uh, 42, mm -hmm. like that, where, mm -hmm. for instance, prophylactic GCSF. Well, let me ask you this. Yeah. 
does GCSF allow you to push the dose of a chemo drug? Yeah. Yeah, of course. Yeah. yeah. That's what dose yeah, dense yeah, ACT yeah, yeah. is, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. No, no, maybe they explain no. more. Yeah, 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 no, I think like, you know, that's that's an important thing that maybe we we're, we take for granted because yeah, yeah, we know right, it, right. right? But but giving people GCSF allows you to crank up the chemo. Yeah, yeah. And we know that to be true because we have dose dense ACT. And everyone loves dose dense ACT. Dose dense ACT. Dose dense ACT. You know? Do they like TC? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They don't like TC as much. I don't know why, but they don't. But they like dose dense. But dose dense, if you took away the GCSF, you'd never get through it. Yeah, yeah. And many drugs, you, if you took away the GCSF, you never get through it. And what Timothy is saying is that, you know, I'm fine to let you give it or not give it, but it should be the same in both arms. Yeah, if one arm's yeah. allowed to get it prophylactically, like everyone gets it before they get the chemo, and the other arm is not getting it prophylactically, well, then you're advantaging the, the other arm. And if one arm is uh, allowed to get it, but there's one trial, some trials where they're actually prohibited entirely. Yeah, prohibited entirely sometimes, yeah. But that's ridiculous. I mean, that's like pro telling me how to practice. I mean, that's like yeah, yeah, yeah. interfering with the practice of medicine. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's really, you know, in a, in some some uh, little space of the protocol, you, you find that. It's not, oh, yeah. it's not it's not publicized. Uh, yeah. So I think, well, there's a reason why it's not publicized. People weren't looking for it because, to be honest, before these papers on the topic, no one ever talked about these issues. This is the first paper, I think, that puts GCSF on the map, with the exception of our commentary. Um, and the dose, drug dosing, you know, after that 2014 paper in the JCO, people didn't talk about it too much. They just probably realized it was a great place to exploit. Um, so it's very interesting. And the paper's out in the European Journal of Cancer. Yeah, European Journal of Cancer. Uh, so you, Alison Aslam, and me. And uh, it's in open access. So Oh, that's good. Yeah, that's good. So they can actually read it. Yeah. Not like... So uh, no, no excuse. No excuse. What was it that, that I always see people complain, you know? I don't oh, yeah, yeah. Pay, I know, yeah. I know. You know which my paper? paper? Yeah, yeah. Which John Yeah, yeah, yeah. I published a paper and they say, I can't even read this paper. But ironically, the paper, which was about, you know, sort of constructive versus obsessive criticism in science, um, met with a response that proved the point of the paper, which is that you know, people aren't reading and engaging the material. <laughs> yeah, uh, anyway, but it is open access now. That paper is also yeah. open access. Yeah, I, I saw the tweet. So, what have we covered so far? These are um, two things. One, Checkmate 816, Empower 10. This is the real world lung cancer right here. This, is, yeah. this isn't this isn't uh, Vienna, but it's not, not too far. Not, not far. Not, not far. far. <laughs> I mean, by, 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 by plane or by but you a, bird, a bird could go we very could fly, fast. We could fly yeah. right up. But, but we're just far enough that the spin hasn't entered. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> we're just out of the spin cycle. I mean, we, are, we have... Uh, Great people there commenting and, and uh, being critical of um, of things, so so we don't have to complain. Yeah, okay. We sent to Jack West on your podcast. Yeah, and, Jack West and, we and many others. But uh, yeah, you're right. They they, they spin. Yeah. So that's important. And then I think this drug dosing point is very important. It'll affect everyone in all specialties. I think um, people will have to look at it. In uh, you included heme malignancies in your paper. You included yeah, everything, yeah, all the yeah. drug approvals. So unfortunately, that means people will have to. They won't. Have, they'll have to think of something else to look into because we've already looked into it pretty exhaustively. Um, any last points on this before we go to the next paper? Um, I think no. I think it's uh, yeah. That, that was that was surprising. It was so common. Yeah, I'm still surprised that yeah, it's so common. Yeah. You know, even even thinking it might be an issue, I didn't yeah, think it was yeah, that yeah, big an issue. Yeah, yeah. Um, but you know, it, it goes to show you, which is I you know I, I say in the book *Malignant*. I always say the root issue is that we have a system where the person who is painting the painting is also judging the painting contest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so if, I mean, it's natural for the pharmaceutical company to say, we have a new drug. Do I think secotuzumab gobatekin is better than chemotherapy? I do, I, make the, I made it for Christ's sakes, we made it. And should we test it head to head? Yeah. 
but you know what? Let me give myself a little GCSF, you know, because I want to give myself the advantage, you know? It's natural, I think. And the only way to fix this is um, to have some impartial validation of studies. I think this is not a question of reporting or transfer. I mean, they could do a better job of that so that more people will be aware of it. Um, but the root problem is you need some third party to look at your trial protocol and say that's an imbalance and that's not fair. I mean, if it wouldn't be granted approval, this the incentive would change immediately. Yes, right. Yeah. It would change overnight. So those are two good papers. What's the next paper that we've had? Oh, we have um, a lot uh, under review. <laughs> I know, that's <laughs> forever under review. Uh, what we had recently, Tebentafo, Sperm. Well, maybe I think we, we talked about that in one of the prior already. episodes. Yeah. We have some papers... Uh, uh, we can't spoil some. some okay, yeah, we don't yeah, want to talk about yeah. the ones that are under review. Do we have anything accepted that's not yet come out? Mm, not yet, no. No. Okay, well, that's good. All right. Well, we have a lot of interesting things. And um, we have duration of PFS with uh, Alison. Alison, what? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Duration of PFS. Oh, yeah, yeah. Have I talked about that on the channel before? I, I, I don't know. I guess the idea of that paper was to take. Um, you know, you can pick this HCC example, serafinib, in the SHARP study was serafinib versus placebo, then in the Lenva was Lenva versus serafinib, and then in the uh, uh, Atezobev, Atezobev versus serafinib. But here now we have three arms, serafinib, 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 and metastatic unresectable HCC frontline. Metastatic unresectable HCC frontline. Three trials, spanning maybe 15, 20 years. You would guess that the most recent study that had people, you know, with the best imaging and the best knowledge of serafinib and, supportive and the best supportive care, they would take serafinib the longest amount of time. And the first study, which had the worst supportive care, they were learning, they never knew serafinib and HCC, they never know what it was like, they didn't even know if it would work, so they don't really know if they can give it, um, would have the shortest duration of treatment. But what you find is the opposite. It's 5.7 months yeah. in Sharp, it's 3.7 months in Lenva, and it's like 2.7 months in Atezobev. Basically, it's like Atezobev versus somebody like whiff, a whiff of uh, a serafinib in the yeah. air and the serafinib's gone. Yeah. So why does it get shorter? And so Allison Haslam, you and I have a paper in the International Journal of Cancer, mm -hmm where we look at every single time a drug like that has been in the, com the experimental arm and the control arm, and we find not infrequently it has this pattern, which is that the best performance of the drug was in the first trial. Um, in other words, by best I mean the longest duration of treatment. And that's also a bit odd. <laughs> I gotta say that's a bit odd that that would be happening. What do you think about this? No, oh, again, it's an interest. I think it's, um, it's also interesting um, that you have to consider the trials that were done, just not one trial. I have right. a kind of Bayesian thinking of trials, so right. I, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. But look the portfolios of trial, how many trials were conducted, do the treatment duration change or not. I think that's really a part of critical appraisal, not just take one trial and, and, and study it for hours. You have to, to know the context of the trial. Yeah, I think that's something that, um, you know, as a journal club tip, which is you're presenting a new drug in the second line, bladder cancer, fourth line, whatever. Make a table of all the drugs in that setting. You're presenting a response rate of teclistimab. Okay, make a table. Response rate of teclistimab, uh, siltacel, and all the other drugs that came mm. before. What was mm. Dara like? What was Velkid like? And mm. also, then correct the denominator Mel because that. Melphalan. And Melphalan, sure. And Melflufen. You made this point, yeah. Yeah, Melphalan. Yeah, and, and Melflufen. And Melflufen, and Melflufen which we is made this point. totally different. Yeah. Totally different drug, obviously. Melphalan and Melflufen, which is a novel. Yeah, yeah. yeah. One they, is, they, one they is an old drug. We, we, had the, we had a paper on that. Yeah, we had the paper on that. But you make a table of all this, and then the siltacel, you have to correct the denominator because they don't use the intention yeah, to treat yeah. denominator. 
correct it, and then look at it. And then also include in your table, um, you know, grade three pneumonia, pneumonitis, you know, include that, include infection in your table, you, you'll learn something, okay? So I think critical appraisal is never a study in isolation. It's also in the context of the treatments for that disease. And I think it's also in the context of the broader portfolio of clinical trials across diseases. Um, so the lung cancer people are not wrong to learn from breast cancer, but they're just wrong in what they're learning because they're learning the wrong thing. The PATSA didn't work over there and it ain't gonna work over here and it, you gotta validate it here too. Um, so anyway, but I think that's important. The paper with the dean, have we talked about that on the oh, show? Oh yeah, we did. Uh, Let's talk about in a way, we, you talk about before when you did the video, when you calculated the, yeah. Uh, what yeah. was, and the, you know, so. Maybe it was a smithy. I thought the first time, I think it was either that or that um, Dean Bajoran paper for like uh, Pembro and bladder cancer. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, so, yeah. yeah. You explain the idea. So yeah. the paper was basically to look at all the adjuvant trials, uh, adjuvant regist registration trials from 2018 to 2022. Um, so you have maybe 12 approval. You have um, Adora, you have... Uh, um, Olaparibin breast, yeah. you, have, uh, you have basically... And checkpoint inhibitors in a number of things. Yeah, yeah. So these are all new drugs in an adjuvant setting. Yeah. Okay. And so at that time, the, so we studied all the characteristics of the trials. So at that time, they were only based on, improvals, uh, on improvement on um, surrogate endpoints. Soon after, the overall survival benefit from Olaparibin breast came out. But at that time... On the 12th, it was just improved um, DFS, 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 etc. Mm -hmm. And what we calculated was the cost to avert one event mm. for each of the drugs. Which is a simple it's calculation. A, yeah, maybe explain it. Yeah. yeah, so basically, all of these drugs are added to um, adjuvant treatments. So we've surgically removed the tumor. We're trying to increase the cure to fraction. They all have a primary endpoint of some composite time until relapse or new disease or death whichever comes first, which probably is new disease or death for most people, for most of these settings. And all we're saying is how many people do you have to treat and how much money do you have to spend to prevent one primary endpoint event? Yeah. And that event is either a DFS event, an EFS event. And it's important calculation because adjuvant treatment always, always over-treats someone. Yeah. It also always under-treats someone. It's an interesting type of treatment because without that adjuvant treatment, some people are cured and some people will have the disease recur and they will die anyway. Mm -hmm. And with the adjuvant treatment, all the people who are cured already are going to be exposed to a drug they didn't need yeah. because they were already cured. And, and some people are still going to recur and die. Yeah. And they were also exposed to a drug they didn't need, yeah. you know, because unless it extended yeah. their survival, we don't know. But we also exposed to a drug that didn't cure them. Yeah. And only a tiny fraction of people are getting the benefit. Yeah. Yeah. So you're treating, over-treating a lot of people yeah. to flip a few coins, yeah. you know, to flip somebody who would have been, who was not yeah. going to cure and to be cured. Um, and, and so it's important. So you get Amazon here too. You get packages here in Switzerland. Yeah, it's not Amazon. It's not Amazon, huh? Even think, their tentacles think, haven't I come think here. Switzerland is maybe the only place in the world where Amazon is not making. Really? Yeah. I wonder why that is. Well, Amazon is a you know predatory predatory company. Obviously, they sell you things at low prices, but in San Francisco, I'm not specialized in. Uh, I'll tell you something. I gotta say this: in San Francisco, when you are driving, one lane of every road is the Amazon delivery oh, vehicle. You know, they oh, come and they park, they oh, double yeah, park yeah, their yeah, car. Yeah, I saw that, yeah. They need to start paying some tax for this because they keep parking their car, and you can barely pass some of these streets. I saw that. I saw very. It's often. ridiculous. Very often, yeah, yeah. Everyone lives by Amazon. Yeah, yeah. God forbid people go to the store and purchase things in person.
you could get sick from that. Apparently, I don't know why they don't. I don't know why they don't do it. Okay, anyway, back to what we're saying. So we have just covered the drug dosing paper. So the GCSF paper. So we were just um, talking about the cost. The cost. Yeah. We were already past that. We're on the cost. So thing. the Edine paper. Okay. Oh, you're getting to the punchline. Yeah, the punchline is that yeah. the median cost to avert one event was one million six. Uh, $600,000. $1,600,000. $1.6 million. Bucks. Yeah. And the reason that's an important number is it's pretty high. It's pretty high. It's pretty high. And, you is know, it sustainable? Yeah, I just don't think it's sustainable. Um, somebody's going to come along and say, um, you know, that... Uh, that each of these DFS events averted is adding 20 years of life to people in the future. But the counter-argument to that would be is, where'd you, where'd you get that number from? You just made that up. Because, of course, the tri- yeah. many yeah. trials have not even reported OS. Yeah, yeah. You don't even know that to be true. So you're assuming something that's not in question. And cost-effectiveness analyses will assume something not in that has not been demonstrated. And they will yield probably a different result. But this is why this is a... You know, to some degree, it's a purer result than a cost-effectiveness. And here's why. Everything that goes into our calculation is a measured value. It really costs that much money, mm-hmm. and it really averts that many events. You yeah, know. Yeah. Whereas when you do a, a formal cost-effectiveness analysis, you're going to have to impute what yeah. you think the life years yeah. added will be, and you'll just be basically making up a number because you don't know that to be true because mm-hmm. you've never measured mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. I think that was um, an important paper and yeah. was uh, well, positively welcomed. Yeah. It was well-received, yeah. People... People. It was covered in ESMO, I think, ESMO press release. Oh, good. Yeah, and the right. drug dosing was covered also. In Med- Medscape? Yeah. yeah. Oh, good for them. Yeah. And they covered it critically. They covered it. Uh, they asked some question. I answered the question. And These oh. days, these days, a lot of these papers are getting covered. It's always surprising me because I don't even know what's coming. And I just look and I see. It says, we spoke to the author. Alison Haslam, and we spoke to Timothy, yeah. or, or sometimes it says, we didn't speak to anyone. We just saw, we just take excerpts from the article. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. that's right. <laughs> we, we, didn't, we, didn't, we didn't reach out to the authors, you know, we don't bother them. We just, we just copied and pasted parts of their abstract. But that's good. That's good. Um, you the know. VK Prasad Lab. <laughs> did they, put, did they put that in there? No, no but, uh, yeah. maybe, but. Well, it's a, it's just a, do some, it's uh, a real lab. Advertisement. Yeah. yeah, well, are we, are we looking for people? We have a lot of, we have a lot of people now. We have a lot of projects, but, uh, you know, if somebody is uh, somebody really wants to do oncology policy, they should reach out to us. We have our our Zoom meetings, and the Zoom meeting, I always see you with this background, mm-hmm. and now here I'm finally on this side of the yeah. camera. Yeah, and soon we'll be in Calif- on the other side, soon California, we'll be back in California. Again, yeah. So, um, what are some what any other thoughts in this space? Um, hmm. I mean, I don't know. To summarize, maybe some of the broader themes that we've been talking about. We'll come back to the malignant book series. But I think, you know, the work that we've been doing for the last, maybe that we can summarize some of the work we're doing broadly. Um, now this all got started by a podcast, Plenary Session. You yeah. reached out to me. Yeah. And you had read Checkmate 067, the yeah. uh, Larkin uh, melanoma, melanoma study. Yeah. And you were concerned with the rates of censoring because nevoipi is very toxic. Yeah. And now I think we've, we've been on that issue a lot and we've proven that it has a high rate of censoring. Mm-hmm. And you had a paper in the European Journal of Cancer as well where you imputed different values. And, and basically you find that, what, with, with some very was, basic assumptions, the, the, yeah. the whole thing will tip. Absolutely. It was in GCE, Journal of Cancer Opinion. Same letters, but... Uh, <laughs> and, um, and yes, uh, there were high rates of censoring of the quality of life uh, questionnaires 
in one arm as compared with the other in the combination arm of uh, the Checkmate 067 trial. And we imputed this uh, missing data and we found that there, sh there could be a detrimental effect in the combination arm. Yeah, and it's just hidden by the fact yeah. that there's a lot of censoring. And then we've done this work. And then we have some unpublished work that I presented recently at the at yeah. a UCSF conference, one of which is very provocative. And I think, um, you know, hopefully it'll be, it'll be well published and so that people will be able to consider that argument. Um, and some of the other things are, I think, also provocative. Um, what's the uniting theme across all this work? You know, I mean, you people call it meta research. What, what, yeah. what are we doing here? What is this I, work we're I, doing? For me, for me, it's really... Uh... The core, the core thing is patient advocacy, I, I would say. Um, what I mean by patient advocacy is uh, what is the best for patient? How can patient be better, better off? I, how can patient be protected from toxicities or have less toxicities? And there's also something related to fairness or truth or you call whatever. But we have to be fair with, with people. We can't cheat them. We can't can sell them something saying it's uh, wonderful and maybe maybe it's wonderful for some but <coughs> we have to be fair i think and so for me that's uh, really the, the core motivation about clinical practice and to be to to be really fair in our way of uh, practicing medicine and talking with patients and the families and uh, yeah i think that's interesting because to me um you know clinical epidemiology and evidence-based medicine they get all sorts of, you know, attacks and all sorts of misconceptions about them. But they're really a technique to ensure fairness. Um, fairness, one type of fairness is that, you know, we actually rely on data and not someone's opinion. That's a certain type of fairness because in the old days it was just the opinion of the most, the, the oldest person with the most gray hair or the person who's the most forceful at the meeting. Uh, that's obviously not the path to truth. Um, so evidence-based medicine is, is seeking, I think, truth and fairness. And then in these cases, the for-profit incentive has, is swept oncology. And if you look at a lot of checklists, you'll say, oh, it's randomized. That's good. It's mm. a trial. That's good. It has a lot of people in it. That's good. Good, 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 good. But there are all these other ways that bias has inserted itself, and you need to use clinical epidemiology, uh, evidence-based medicine, and, and meta-research to kind of point those out to other people yeah, yeah. so that there can be awareness of that um, and to try to think about how we can minimize that because what we care about is truth and fairness. On the issue of fairness, the other thing I think that's unfair is that um, health is both a very important uh, product for people. In fact, uh, I would even say sort of a human right to mm -hmm. some degree, like healthcare that actually makes you better off, I think is a human right. But it's also a financial product. It makes a lot of people rich. Yeah. And the people who, who think of it as a financial product, they it, it's not as important to them that it makes people better off as, as long as you think it does and we can sell it. And, and that creates another bias in the space, um, which is that if you think it improves healthcare and we can sell it, we'll sell it. Uh, and I think that's why some egregious examples get all the, all the news, like the Aducanumab, yeah, yeah, Alzheimer's yeah. drug, because everyone can see, you're never proven to me it yeah, works. Yeah. Um, the harder places are you know, oncology, which is a niche space. We have to know a lot to even kind of probe it. And then I think the other ones are you know, some of these broader public policy issues where people have a lot of emotion, mm. um, particularly with COVID-19, uh, yeah. Yeah, where, where they just don't always think very objectively about it. Uh, that's a tough place to go. Um, the aducanumab, it's interesting to me. We, I mean, I agree with everyone who's been critical of aducanumab, but we don't need as many of you there. We need a few to spread out, spread out, you know, cover yeah. the other topics. There's some other problems yeah, out yeah, there. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I think you're absolutely right. 
And then I guess the last question is, um, you've been in the U.S. Yeah. and Geneva uh, and Europe, um, and now you know your year is almost coming to an end. What would you say similarities, differences? You know, you followed mm-hmm. me in clinic. Yeah. Maybe you could talk about clinic too. So clinic, yeah. I would say a lot of similar similarities. Yeah. A lot of similar similarities uh, in the way you interact with other specialties, in the way you interact with patient. Um, there are some differences, but uh, um, I didn't felt it was so different. And what I what I learned a lot is uh, all the the research part, uh, and I came uh, mostly for that. Um, and I enjoy it, and I learn a lot. I'm still learning. I think you learn your your whole life, <laughs> I mm. suppose. That's the that's the fun part. Here's what I find different. One, uh, you all have a different uniform. It's very white. Ah, it's yeah, very crisp. Yeah. I didn't get into those. Details. Oh, those details. Well, no, it has no, no, to be. No. Okay, okay. You all, you have a different. Oh, the location u- is not the same. Location is not the same. <laughs> the weather is not the same. The weather is not the same. Yeah. Uh, the uniform. I gotta yeah. say, the uniform. There, you, you all are, you're dressed like pastry chefs in a fine New York City restaurant. I mean, yeah. you're wearing a starched white jacket the sleeves are usually cut up because you know what you're taking infection precautions seriously because in yeah. the u.s people are reusing a patagonia fleece uh as far as i t- i don't know if it has MRSA fighting properties but they're reusing a patagonia fleece you they're all wearing a laundered yeah. outfit and the institution launders it for you yeah. which i think is not always the case in uh, the states um the hospital had a similar layout um the uh the uh the the trainees seemed um i think they the, I know this because in the lecture, I heard the pager go off a few times, mm. but I don't think it was as many times as I hear in the U.S., mm. the pager going off. Mm. And what do I think? I think that the U- U- U.S. has kind of become sort of, the hospital has become so frenzied and crazy. Mm. You can never focus on your thoughts for mm. a split second, mm. particularly the most junior people who mm. are constantly being interrupted. Yeah, I uh, saw that. Um, I agree. But honestly, you can have these kind of moments also. In, in Europe, yeah. yeah. But we've been on rounds where we can't even talk to the fellow yeah, yeah, because the fellow is getting page after page after page but after it, page, and they're like, yeah, "What yeah. is going on?" It's like, give this person like five minutes so he yeah, can yeah. at least get some work done. Um, I don't know. I mean, I don't know what the solution to it is. Um, I think there has to be some sort of improvements there. Um, the burnout issue. Do you all talk about burnout in Europe? I don't. I didn't feel like that was a common theme. Oh, that's that's a, that's an issue. That's a, that's talk uh, talk uh, very often. I think no, even in Europe. Yeah, I think it's the same as a, as. A, as I feel US. like oncology podcasts. Fifty percent are about burnout and working for pharma, which is mm. probably a symptom of the same mm. root discontent. Mm. Um, but uh, you know, I don't think about it often, and I don't even feel it at all. I mean, I think that. Um, but maybe yeah. for for Switzerland you have a different view because you you came with uh, it was novel and you really like you really enjoy and yes but I, I and I, I that's all true and I've very much enjoyed my visit uh, with you all and chatting with the the fine doctors here um, but I don't feel you know burnout I don't think in the states and I think it's because we're we we define our own research agenda and we're pursuing it and mm-hmm. we're sort of genuinely mm-hmm. interested in these topics. All right. Um, any final thoughts, or should we wrap it up? No, I'm very happy to to make this uh, Swiss Alp episode, and um, I hope listeners will enjoy. Yes, and we they should check malignant. out the papers. Yeah. We'll be back because we'll be back in the states. We're going to finish the Malignant Book Club. Yeah, I think yeah. we have five more episodes to record. Yeah, maybe four or five. Yeah. Four or five, yeah. and um, and uh, we're going to put links in the description yeah. to some of the papers people should read. They should follow VK Prasad Twitter website. Yeah. It just covers the papers, um, and we'll be back with Dr. Olivier for more. Yeah. So, until next time. Until next time. Bye. And on that positive note. <laughs> <laughs>